children are dismissed back to Praise Factory. And if you would open your Bible, it's exciting not to be saying to the book of Genesis. As much as I love the book of Genesis, um, I'm excited to say open up your Bible to the book of Matthew. Uh, We're going to be reading uh, from chapter 1, starting in in verse 1 and reading to verse 17. And this may be a passage that uh, you you don't see the relevance of immediately, and I I pray that you will... um, You'll stick with it and, uh, and, and, and be encouraged as we read and then explain God's word. Uh, starting in, in verse 1, Matthew chapter 1, the Bible says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Father, we come to a text that uh, in the, the United States, um, in an age of genealogy.com and family trees and publicly available information uh, can be viewed as pretty sterile and boring because it seems to have no immediate reference to us. 
we thank you that you preserved this information in different forms and in different places, starting in the book of Genesis and then in other books like Ruth and, and uh, First Kings and, and First Chronicles. And, and this information is, is in the biblical text in many places so that it can be used here to prove a point. Lord, there are many cultures we know of where genealogy is important evidence where it, it says something, and, and the Jewish people were no different. And so we thank you for, for your servant Matthew, who chose to begin his gospel with these words, and we pray that, that we would be given cultural eyes to see that our hearts would be softened, and that we would lower our defenses and hear truth from your word as Matthew drives the point of this text home to us. And Father, I pray that as we begin this study of Matthew, that we would embrace the meaning and that our hearts would rejoice at what's being said here and that we would celebrate, Father, as we begin a journey into knowing who Jesus is. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So when I, when I thought, oh, I get to preach the genealogy, I thought immediately of opening credits to a movie, and I thought, surely there must be some epic, memorable opening credits out there. And so I said, I'm just going to set aside my personal prejudices and, and, and desires for a moment, and I, I googled and I, I looked at uh, 17, the top 17 uh, opening credit sequences in movies, and, and two things became immediately apparent. One, I didn't know and hadn't seen any of the movies, and, and two, most of them were just kind of like blah. You know, they, weren't, they were not epic, memorable opening credits. But if you had the, the, the blessing to be able to go into the theater in the 1970s and to be there the first time those stars showed up on the screen and then the yellow words that said Star Wars. You know epic opening lines. We don't even know what that text says. I mean, I don't. Somebody out there, if you've got it memorized, you, you are a, a geek of, of epic proportions. You exceed me. But those, those words are so iconic, that scrolling yellow text. You know that what's coming next is, is the Star Wars story. Um, <coughs> This is not a tradition invented with, with George Lucas. Uh, the, the credits, the idea of, a, of, a, of having a good opening line um, goes back into literary history and even um, uh, it can be found throughout the biblical text. We know that the book of Genesis opens with this fantastic line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the story of the, the, the Hebrew word that's there, uh, ha'aretz, is actually the word for the land. And so God is telling his people from the, from the very beginning that God created the heavens and the land. And then the story of the book of Genesis is an exodus and numbers, uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, is a story of the people moving from captivity in Egypt to their very own land. That's, it's the, the, the perfect line to begin that story with. John begins his memorable gospel with the line, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And then we're treated to this wonderful book of information about things that had not been disclosed in the previous Gospels and, and new stories and new teachings uh, that, that John had heard, which had he not heard and written down, some of them could hardly be believed. Had he not, had he not contained that information about this man who from the beginning was God. Matthew does the same. He begins the book with this memorable line, uh, perhaps not so memorably rendered in English. Let me just say one thing. I'm going to say two things in my message this morning that may violate my normal principle of not undermining your confidence in the English Bible, okay? Let me just say this. This is not my intention. My intention is to say you may be reading some things into your English Bible, projecting them on there, uh, and, that, and that the meaning of what's written there is actually better and more meaningful than what you as a Westerner might be putting onto the text, okay? So, so I'm just going to say a word about translation and then a word about genealogies. Um, Matthew uses two words at the very beginning of his text here. We read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ because that's a good way of rendering it in English. But, but the Greek words are... Uh, if, if you were just to, to, to read them as written on the tech, on the page, it, the, the words are book genesis of Jesus Messiah. The book of the genesis of Jesus the Messiah. He's, he's throwing back to, to uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. This, he's saying, is the book of the genesis of Jesus the Messiah. We read Jesus Christ and we think that's his last name. But the way that he's using it here is, is putting a title on him. This is the origin story of Jesus, the Messiah. This is what he did. He's the son of Abraham and the son of David. And he's setting the stage for the fact that we have arrived at this point where God's work in the world, his work of redemption, is fulfilled in one sense. Because the Messiah has arrived. But in another sense, you're going to read this and you're going to realize you've not seen anything yet. Because this is not going to happen the way that you thought. So this morning, we're going to overview three divisions of the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And that's going to demonstrate to us this central theological truth that Matthew is going to teach us throughout the whole work as he tells the story of the one who changed his life. So let's talk about the genealogy for just a second before we dig into it. I want to acknowledge that, that there are scholars out there who find enormous problems with this genealogy, okay? They, they look at it and they say it's non-historical and it's inaccurate because of some of its features. But, but let me say this, that the use of the genealogy may not be what we think of in our Western mindset. We think as Westerners, okay, because this list begins with Abraham and continues to David and ends with Jesus, that therefore it is an exact, detailed, perfect representation of everyone in the line of Christ between Abraham and Jesus. And I would say that that would be a wrong assumption. That the fact that it is not historically uh, precise to the point that Westerners choose does not violate its use. And it does not mean that it's not untrue if he eliminates a couple names in the genealogy. Okay? Let me, let me, let me point some things out. If you look at verse 5, you'll notice that um, Salmon, Salmon, 
You know, did he wear like pink pants? Um, salmon, it just sounds so bizarre, like he's a fish or something. Uh, so I'm just going to call him Salmon for a minute because it just will make you feel better. Uh, this guy, I'm not even going to say that. Um, this guy became the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab, included in the lineage of Jesus, was a woman who lived in the city of Jericho and who predates the birth of Boaz by probably an entire century. The times are uneven in the lists. List one, the verses two to six, covers about seven to eight hundred years. List two, uh, seven to eleven, covers about four hundred years. List three, from twelve to sixteen, covers about six hundred years. In the line of, of David to Jeconiah, uh, there are about three or four names missing from David's line. Now, Matthew has access to these resources. If you read uh, the book of First Chronicles, I believe, it's either First Chronicles or First Kings, the first like nine chapters are just genealogies and, and lines. And so Matthew had all that. Matthew's got access to the genealogies in Genesis. He's got access to the genealogy in the book of Ruth. And yet, when he tells this story, he chooses to eliminate certain names and certain people. Now, it is very possible that, that reading that Perez became the father of Hezron immediately in, in its use in the Greek language means that this guy is that guy's dad. But it is also equally accurate in Greek to say that this person is this person's father. Okay? and mean that they're their great-great-great-grandson, okay? Does that, does that make sense? They didn't have the term grandfather, per se. You just knew that they were in their lineage. Now, think about it. If I were to say to you this morning that, in my opinion, the great presidents in the United States, please don't judge me here politically. I'm just coming up with some names. If I were to say uh, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Eisenhower, and Reagan, right, you... Don't assume what people might assume who are looking back at that list thousands of years later. They might think, oh, the United States has only had four presidents. Right? Because I named them all together. But you know, because you have all the cultural information loaded in your brain, that there's distance between those people. You just fill it in. And you think, oh, he's surveying. Because you have all the information. And so when Matthew presents this list here, what he's making is not necessarily some kind of sociological point or some kind of statistical point, like these are all of the names between G uh, Abraham and Jesus. What he is making, this is what I'm going to argue for now as we move on, is a theological point. The information's accurate. All of these people are in Jesus' lineage. And so we can say that this is an accurate list. But you will find places where a name or two or three have been eliminated and, and taken out of the genealogy. Because Matthew is demonstrating something to the people. He's proving something to them. His, his shaping might seem to some to be deceptive. But I would say that's not true. I would say the information is accurate and Matthew is shaping and forming the information for the reader because that's what good writers do. He has an agenda. And in some sense, he's signaling his agenda right from the very beginning by editing the genealogy. He's saying to the people, this is the one we've been waiting for. 
This is the one. This is the Messiah. And I'm going to present to you the first piece of evidence here in verses 2 through 16. He's here, and I will prove it. He has found us, and we have seen him, and he found me, and I want you to find him too. I believe that's what Matthew's doing here, and I'll talk about what his theological point is close to the end. So let's look at the first set of names here. And we're not just going to go through the names and be like, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. I want to just kind of hit the the high points here. Uh, We see in verses 2 through 6, from Abraham to the great nation and the king. Uh, We have in this section, starting in verse 2, beginning with Abraham, we have the slow and at times undiscernible progress of God as this family grows and becomes a great nation. We start with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that group goes down into Egypt and becomes a multitude. They're brought out by God. And they are, they are uh, miraculously delivered. They're given a law at Mount Sinai. And then under the leadership of Joshua, they enter in and, and, and conquer the land. And they begin to settle it during the period of Judges. And following that, we move into the period of the monarchy, of David's reign. Now you'll notice in that list that there are four women's names. Actually, the, the fourth woman, her name is mentioned at the beginning of the, the second set. I think this is interesting as well because you can, you can tell that he's not sticking to a formula. He's presenting particular names for a particular reason. He's, he doesn't need to include names of moms because he's not done that from the beginning. He's doing it. He's, he's introducing where these women are in the lineage of the one he is describing for a purpose. Now, some people say that he is pointing out the fact that these women have dubious character. Okay? Tamar, the seducer of Genesis 38. Rahab, the the woman of poor reputation in the book of Joshua. Ruth, the Moabite from another nation. And then Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, the adulterer. But I don't think that's a good reason for including them. Some some are saying that, that, that Jesus, though he comes to save sinners, has sinners in his past. I don't think that's the point of why he includes the women. I mean, one, the first name on the list, Abraham, he himself is a a big sinner. So this is not, we don't need to, we don't need to include um, the the names of of some uh, occasionally poorly behaved women to, to make that point. You move from Abraham to Isaac, also a sinner, and then to Jacob, and then to Judah, who is also a sinner. Um, Now, let's not even get into the names of the kings that show up later. Well, we'll do that later. Um, the, the, the four women, I believe, are there for another reason. And that's this. All of them are Gentiles. They're not direct descendants of Abraham. They are Gentile women who are drawn in to the family of God. Let me, let me make the point that I think Matthew is making. This is a point Matthew's going to make in his gospel many times through different stories. Did you plan at any point in your life before you heard it to hear and believe the gospel? Did you think at some point, I am struggling for meaning, and and I believe that that meaning will come when I hear a message about Jesus Christ. Did, Did you imagine, even for a second, the wealth of of knowledge and and truth that you've learned from the scripture after hearing the gospel for the first time? I would say 
that the answer ought to universally in this room be no. Jesus found you. He came looking for you. The work of God entered your life and you believed the gospel. Listen to what Matthew might be saying. I believe this is what, he's, what he is saying. Throughout his gospel, he will say things like, are you being crushed by the, the strictness of the law and by those who say that they can keep it? Are they, are they judging you? Are you oppressed and marginalized by society? Are you, are you lonely and you have no one? Are you sick and in need of healing? Are you tired of carrying around the burden of all of your sins and hiding your dark secrets? Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The work of Messiah is not just for the family of Abraham. That's what we learn in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The, the blessing that's going to come from the great nation is going to be for all nations. From day one, it's been a message for all nations, for all people, for sinners, and for those who think that they are perfect and godly. And we'll learn in this gospel that there is not a single one who fits that second description. A centurion comes to Jesus and says, my servant is sick and I need him to be healed. And Jesus says, okay, cool, healing, let's go, right? I'll, I'll come with you. And, and the man's like, no, 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 you're important. You got a lot of stuff to do. Your calendar's full. I know that you're busy. You stay right here. You're a man with authority. I am also a man with authority. And I know that if I say to my guys, go here, do that, build this, kill that, they'll do it because they are under my authority and healing is under your authority. So just say the word, say that he's healed, and that's good enough for me. Jesus' reaction to that is this. He says, it says, when Jesus heard this, this is Matthew chapter 8, he marveled and said to those who followed him, this mob of people, not just his 12 disciples, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, he's talking about the Jews who have a genetic connection with Abraham but do not have his faith, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. Why are these Gentiles included in the list? Because the message is for the Gentiles too. And they will come and worship him just as the Magi came and worshipped. But the connection from Abraham to David is clear. Is this, is it possible that this is the son of David? In the book of 2 Samuel, God makes a promise to David when he has sat on the throne when he has consolidated his kingdom and he has demonstrated that he truly still is a man after God's own heart. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
Now, many people might have thought that he was talking about Solomon here, and in a sense he is, because the verses 14 and 15 apply directly to Solomon and all of the other sons of David. But, but we learn in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that the, that the offspring who will inherit the land and, and who will bless the nations is not Isaac, but some singular figure far off in the future, the anointed one, the Messiah. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and your house, verse 16, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so the people had wondered all down the history of the Jewish nation, when will that offspring come? When will we have a king like David again? Because none of them have been like him. Andrew Peterson wrote a, a wonderful little Christmas album that um, you, can, you can maybe find in the stores. If you can make it past the, the potpourri and, and all the other stuff that kind of clutters up the Christian bookstore. If you can find the album, uh, Behold the Lamb. There's a wonderful song on there called So Long Moses about the king and the hopes of the people. Describing David, Andrew Peterson has the people singing, you were a king on a throne, full of power, with a sword in your fist. Has there ever been, ever been a king like this? Full of wisdom, full of strength. The hearts of the people are his. Hear, O Israel, was there ever a king like this? There was, but it lasted for just a a, a glimmer, and none of David's sons were ever like that again. And that's what we see in verses 7 through 11. From the David being a king to the deportation, to the exile. What, what would David's successors do with David's kingdom? David builds a, a kingdom that's centered on the worship of the God who brought them out of Egypt. David's successors, Solomon, Rehoboam, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Jeconiah, these are, these are names that at, at once uh, uh, have some sense of glory like Solomon, but they also uh, induce the people to sigh because Solomon filled the kingdom with idolatry because of, of his, his taking of many wives. And, and uh, so he set up many places of false worship. And Rehoboam, through his foolishness, split the kingdom. And Hezekiah revealed his riches to the Babylonians in, in, in foolishness. And, and the Babylonians were, were tempted then to come and to destroy the kingdom. And Manasseh engaged in unheard of witchcraft. Jeconiah was so wicked that his name was expunged from the royal line. David's children would squander and waste his kingdom. They would destroy it as they wandered from fellowship with God. God brings the, the Babylonians to the land to destroy the kingdom. This is the part of the story that my, my Zambian students don't know anything about. Maybe, maybe you don't know anything about it either. This, this bothers them. I, I tell them, what we're going to do is we're going to see God build a great nation in Act 1 of the Bible, and then in Act 2, he's going to bring the blessing from that nation to all the nations. And so I say, Act 1 has three scenes. In Act 1, we build a great nation, and they know that. David comes to the throne. But in scene 2 of Act 1, God destroys that nation. Why? Because of their wickedness. And the students are like, why is he doing this? 
That's this section that we're in right here. Verses 7 through 11. The nation falls apart. It is, it is judged because of the wickedness of the people and the wickedness of the king. And as the glory of God in a vision lifts up from the temple and wanders through the city, making a very deliberate pass out of the temple and then through the city streets and then up the mountain and over, and the glory of God fades, uh, uh, the, the, the prophet Ezekiel hears that God has renamed the city, not the city that I love, but Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. As the, as the temple is torn down and as the Ark of the Covenant is carried off and as the priests and the, the greatest of the people are led off in chains, the people realize that the sacrificial system has been destroyed and that the law is gone and that the promises are lost. It is over. It's over. And in the midst of this, Jeremiah makes a promise to the people. He says this, verse, verse 4 of Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for it's in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. This is what the prophets were saying. Judgment is not going to last. God's going to redeem you. God's going to save you. You're going to go back to the land. It's just going to be a little while. Think about the assurance and the encouragement of the promise that's coming. Maybe, maybe you know what it is. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The exile was crushing emotional pain for the Jews. They wrote in, in the psalm uh, that, that they could not sing the Lord's song in a foreign land because the, the, everything was destroyed. They had been exiled from David's lineage. There, there was no Davidic king on the throne. They'd been exiled from the land. They'd been exiled from the temple and from access to God. And in their darkest, deepest fears was the realization that the people were not covered and that they were condemned in their sin. And all they had to expect was judgment from God because they could not offer their offerings. All was truly lost. And 70 years later, the promises of God come true. And we see this in 12 to 16. From the deportation to the Messiah and to the kingdom. Uh, Zerubbabel, who's got a cool name that, that is great to say, uh, leads the exiles back onto the land. He urges them under the ministry of the, the prophet Haggai to rebuild the temple. And God promises him, encourages Zerubbabel to be strong. He encourages the high priest Joshua to be strong. Be strong, 
Haggai 2.4 says, All you people of the land, declares the Lord, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Even when it seems like all is lost, even when it seems like there is no forward progress in the plan of God, even when it seems like Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years and when is he coming back? We know that God keeps his promises because we've seen it in history. And so Paul's encouragement to us, be steadfast, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We stick to the task at hand because God is faithful to his promises. This genealogy signals that two millennia of plans have come to fulfillment. What does Joshua say before he dies on the land? He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. They had all come to pass. They had not received everything, but everything that they had received indicated that nothing God had promised had failed. Solomon says the same thing in 1 Kings chapter 8 before he goes nuts. Uh, Blessed be the Lord who's given rest to his people Israel on the land, in the temple. Not one word has failed of, of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. And so Matthew presents the story of Jesus' ministry. And, and, and in verses like Matthew 12, 23, it says, all the people were amazed and they said, can this be the son of David? Is this him? Is, is God fulfilling his promise to us? Is this Messiah? Andrew Peterson again, in his song, tells us what Matthew is telling us. Yes, it's Messiah, and the kingdom is here, but not like you think. He'll bear no beauty or glory, rejected, despised. A man of such sorrow will cover our eyes. He'll take up our sickness, carry our tears. For his people, he will be pierced. He'll be crushed for our evils, our punishment feel. By his wounds, we will be healed. Matthew's telling them this is the one you've waited for. Wait until you see him and learn of him. You've been hungering for Messiah. You've been reading that psalm over and over again for for hundreds of years that as the deer pants for flowing streams, oh God, so we pant for you. Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I believe Matthew is saying, this is the one, and you will see him and you will learn of him and he will satisfy your soul. We can be sure, in part because of the genealogy, that God keeps his promises. He's kept his promise to David, and he's kept his promise to Abraham. And we can be sure that God acts in a way that's consistent with his character. But we can also be sure that his character is one that surprises. The story of the genealogy is of a nation built... That includes Gentiles, which is kind of strange for the the people who Matthew is writing to, but also of a nation built and then destroyed and then recovered. 
the strange twists of the plan in, in the inclusion of, of Ruth and, and Bathsheba and Rahab and Tamar are included to remind us that because though the story um, is, is fulfilling, the strange twists might not be over. We're going we're gonna to see almost immediately that, that Jacob, right, fathers Joseph, and Joseph is not called the father of Jesus, but he's called the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Messiah. The legal descendant of David adopts this boy, but he's not his father. God, the father, is the father of this boy because the man who's coming into the world as the son of David is God himself. This is a strange twist, and there's an even bigger one coming as we read through the story. You think that, that having a, uh, a, a Messiah who has no paternity is a strange twist. Think about the fact that, that we go from the deportation to the Messiah, and the Messiah doesn't actually set up the kingdom. He goes to the cross. This is a, a, a dramatic change. This is not supposed to happen. Acts 2.22, this is what Peter says on the, the day that the church is born. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, called Jesus here, because Jesus is a very popular name, the Greek form of the, the name Joshua. He's called Jesus of Nazareth because it's that specific Jesus. Um, he's called Jesus the Messiah in this gospel by Matthew because there is and will in history only be one Jesus after this time. Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is not an accident that Messiah goes to the cross. This is the definite plan of God. This is what Messiah is supposed to do when he comes, but none of us recognized it. None of us saw it. And so learn, Matthew is saying, as we go through the story. Be challenged. Remember how it, how it, how it came to pass that we are here in this place. And know that you must believe and receive in this, 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 this Messiah, this Christ. You must have a part in him. It's interesting. In Matthew 27, 40, verse 42, um, Matthew puts words of the gospel on the lips of Jesus' enemies. As the strange plan of God unfolds. The Pharisees and Sadducees and people gathered around to mock Jesus at his crucifixion say, says this, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. But Matthew is saying, up to the cross he has really truly saved none. This is how he saves at all. He cannot save himself, is not true. He would not save himself because if he saved himself from the cross, none could be redeemed. He would not come down from the cross. He refused. 
At any moment, he could have left. That was his prerogative. But he stayed there according to the plan that he made with his father. And so he took the place of sinners on the cross and he bore the full wrath of God and he died. And sins are paid for. And then he was raised. And now God commands all to believe in him. And Matthew is saying to the people who begin to read this book, this is the first piece of evidence that I submit to you find it amazing that Matthew is, is writing to uh, a people who are obsessed with the temple and obsessed with sacrifice. And when Jesus is out ministering, he tells them, one greater than the temple is here. A sacrifice who will go to the cross and truly pay for sins. Matthew includes in chapter 1 this verse in Verse 21, she, speaking of Mary, will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The people are waiting for David to come and to set up a throne and deliver them from the Romans. But Matthew says, Jesus, the Messiah, is coming to take your sins upon himself and to deliver you from God, to save you from wrath. And so he closes on this theological point in verse 17. So, two or three minutes, conclusion. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Why 14? Why, why does Matthew shape and limit his genealogy to these lists of 14 names? Why does he set it up this way? Uh, I plowed through a bunch of theories and I looked at them and I found a lot of them unsatisfying, boring, and not even worth mentioning. But if Matthew has shaped his genealogy and he has an agenda, he wants to prove something to us, then, then surely there must be some reason for these, these three repetitions. I mean, it's clear, this is the outline of the Old Testament, that, that God builds a nation, uh, summing up, the high point is the kingship of David, and then after David's death, the, the nation declines and is judged by God as they are deported to Babylon. And then the remainder of the Old Testament is devoted to bringing the Christ out of the people. Uh, bringing Christ to the people and to the cross. But why 14? So, let me, let me share this with you. Um, the best theory that I read is this. Uh, the Jews had no Arabic numbers like we have, right? We've got the number one to represent one, but they did not have one to represent one. And so what they did is they used their own alphabet. And the, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet arranged in order each have a numeric value. And so you look at the, the numbers, right, of the Hebrew alphabet and you try to figure out, like you, if you were going to write down, you know, 141, you would write a certain kind of letter, number of letters and you would say, oh, it represents this number. So the Hebrew letter Dalet has a numerical value of four. And then the Hebrew letter Yot has a numerical value of six. I said this wrong in the early service and everybody was like, that doesn't add up. 
I've said a thousand times I don't do math. Um, so I, I, I fixed my mistake. The Hebrew letter Dalit is, has a numerical value of four. And the Hebrew letter Yod has a, uh, a value of six. And if you take the letters Dalit, Yod, Dalit, four, six, four, they add up to 14. Well, what is, what is Dalit, Yod, Dalit spell? Translate those letters to, to English. It's D V D. This is not a movie, right? If you throw the vowels in there, and there's no vowels in Hebrew, it says David. Jesus is the son of David. Matthew is saying this is this is piece one of the evidence. I'm going to show you hundreds of pieces, all kinds of fulfillment. This is him. He has the pedigree. I'm going to show him to you. This is the son of David, and I want you to worship him. In the end of the gospel, after the teachings, after the miracles, after the cross and the resurrection, we have this tiny little epilogue where Jesus sends and tells his disciples through, through another, through a witness, I'll meet them in Galilee, and they go. In Matthew 28, verse 9, it says, Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. And then in the tail end of the book, the last verses, he says, now you're going to take the message about me to all nations. Matthew says, this is a piece of evidence number one. So the challenge as we close is this. Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? Have you trusted that Christ is Messiah? Because Matthew is going to, going to build an entire book on pieces of evidence that he is submitting to us, that, that the story that God has told for the first two millennia of the world and the story that God has been telling for 2,000 years after that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. So my encouragement to you is to trust in Christ. And if you've not, to work through your doubts and your disbelief until you have trusted in him. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Jesus satisfied Matthew, and he will satisfy you too if you believe in him. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Lord, we lift up our hearts to you, and uh, under the, the searchlight of your word and the Holy Spirit, Perhaps you find doubt. Perhaps you find pain and struggle. Perhaps you find loneliness or isolation or unbelief. But I pray that our hearts would be stirred by the reality that there is a Messiah. There is a Savior. There is a Son of David sitting on the throne who says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Come to me, and I'll satisfy. Come and find an object worthy of your worship. Come to me, and I'll forgive you. Come to me, and I will teach you how life makes sense. And we pray that our hearts would be drawn to him. I pray if there's anyone in the room who's not trusted in the Lord Jesus as Savior, Father, that you would draw them to yourself, and that you would build them up and encourage them 
And I pray for the rest of us, Father, who, who are at work in the church or not work at work in the church, not at work in our souls, not attentive to your word, uh, distracted and, and bothered by so many other things. I pray that, that we would be encouraged by the fact that you answer when we call, that you are found when we seek, and that you are faithful to all your promises. And I pray that we would continue in your work and continue about the tasks that we've been given by Jesus. We pray this, Lord, thanking you for your goodness. Amen.